Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shop local and celebrate America's independence at Airport Home Appliance with 4th of July savings of up to 40% off. Visit our website for special buys like front load laundry units as low as $6.29 each or top load laundry units starting at $4.99 each. Let us help you save even more with free delivery, 18-month interest-free financing, and exclusive rebates not found at big box stores. Shop online, over the phone, or in-store. Airport Home Appliance. Unbeatable price, selection, and people. There are few lines more familiar to fans of American horror cinema than They're Coming to Get You, Barbara. The line, uttered by Barbara's brother Johnny at the beginning of George A. Romero's The Night of the Living Dead, shortly before he is killed by a zombie, sets the tone for what some consider to be one of the most influential films ever made. Released in 1968, the film is celebrated for bringing the previously much maligned genre of horror, kicking, tearing and screaming, into the 20th century. The film's potency has much to do with the year it was released, coming out at the height of public disillusionment with the American Vietnam War, but also in the immediate aftermath of both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy's assassinations. For many, Romero's film with its portrayal of uneasy alliances, not-so-casual racism, and the endless march of a moronic, ghoulish horde intent on devouring anyone with a fully functioning brain, appeared to reflect the entire state of a nation. However, The Night of the Living Dead will perhaps mostly be remembered for its portrayal of the humble zombie. Though somewhat ironic, since the term zombie is never used in it, Romero's film, nonetheless, set the template for almost all subsequent iterations of these hapless creatures. It was there that we were first introduced to the flesh-hungry cannibal version of the zombie that could only be defeated by destroying its head. Romero's zombies have become so ubiquitous as a modern-day monster, it is often easy to forget 
just where the notion of the zombie originated from in the first place. Some perhaps are aware of the figure's origins in Haitian folklore and its associations with the ancient practice of voodoo. What you might not know, however, is that for many, the zombie is not merely a figment of folklore, but is in fact considered to be something very real. In 1980, a man walked into a village marketplace in Haiti, claiming to be a local landowner named Clavius Narcisse. After interviewing the man and his family, local authorities confirmed that he was indeed who he said he was. The only problem being that Clavius was supposed to have been dead and buried for 18 years. Two years later, inspired by Clavius's story, ethnobiologist Wade Davis was sent to Haiti on a research trip to find out just how exactly this could have happened. What he eventually discovered was far more bizarre than anything he could possibly have imagined. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Before gaining entry to Harvard University to study anthropology in 1971, Wade Davis had barely been out of his home province of British Columbia in Canada. All that changed, however, when he signed up to a course led by Professor Richard Schultz. A pioneer in the field of ethnobotany, the scientific study of how different cultures and societies relate to and utilise plants, Schultz held somewhat of a mythical status among his students. Schultz had devoted much of his early career to investigating the ritualistic use of peyote and ayahuasca. He was also known for a tendency to disappear into the Amazon rainforest for months, sometimes years at a time, in his quest to better understand the secrets hidden within it. It was Schultz who first encouraged Davis to take his own trip to the Amazon, where in his early 20s, He also tried ayahuasca and soon proved himself to be an outstanding field researcher. By 1982, a then 29-year-old Davis, now a fully-fledged ethnographer in his own right, was teaching a course at Harvard University alongside Schultz when he was called into his mentor's office late one Monday evening. Finding the professor on the phone when he entered, Davis quickly took a seat opposite and waited for him to finish. As he continued the conversation, Schultz quickly scribbled something onto a notepad and handed it to his colleague. It was an address in Manhattan, belonging to a Dr. Nathan Klein. Klein was well known to Davis as a pioneer in the field of psychopharmacology, having been one of the first psychiatrists in the US to use medication to treat individuals with psychiatric disorders. With the call finally coming to an end, Schultz put down the phone and asked Davis if he was free to travel to Haiti in two weeks' time. Having never been to the country before and intrigued by Schultz's playful tone, Davis took up the gauntlet and agreed to contact Klein to find out more. Two nights later, Davis arrived at Dr. Klein's Manhattan apartment where he was introduced to both Klein and his colleague Professor Heinz Lehmann who also happened to be the head of psychopharmacology at Montreal's McGill University. 
With Davis still unsure as to why he'd been invited over, the men made the usual pleasantries before quickly turning to the subject of death, or more specifically, how you determine that a person has well and truly died. As both Lehman and Klein noted, there had been countless examples over the years of individuals being declared dead only to seemingly reanimate days later. Not to mention the various horror stories of people believed to have died, later waking up to find themselves trapped in a coffin deep underground. Interesting as that all was, however, Davis, growing impatient, demanded what it had to do with his being there. Klein promptly got up and left the room, returning moments later with a slim file, which he handed to Davis and invited him to take a look at. Inside, a now even more perplexed Davis found a death certificate for a man named Clavius Narcisse from Lestere in Haiti, dated May 1962, 20 years ago. I don't understand, said Davis. Lehman took a sip of his drink, then invited Klein to elaborate. Clavius, he explained, had been declared dead by two separate physicians only to reappear 18 years later in his home village, very much alive. Davis was unimpressed, however. Clearly, it had just been some kind of administrative error. But then Klein elaborated further. It was late in the evening of April 30th, 1962, when a man approached the front desk of Haiti's Albert Scheitzer Hospital, suffering from a high fever and spitting blood. The man, who was 42 and gave his name as Clavius Narcisse, had been struggling with chest pains and muscle aches for a few days before taking himself to hospital. By now in a desperate state, the medical staff immediately rushed him through to an operating theatre to examine him further. Unable to determine the exact cause of his ailment, the man was kept in for further observation, only for his condition to deteriorate rapidly over the next few days. At shortly after 1pm on May the 2nd, with his sister Angelina watching on from his bedside, Clavius Narcisse died. Having been pronounced dead by two separate doctors, Clavius's older sister, Marie Claire, arrived soon after to identify the body and sign the official death certificate. The man's lifeless body was then placed in cold storage at the hospital morgue before being released for burial the following morning. At 10am on May 3rd, in a cemetery just north of the man's hometown of Lestere, a small handful of friends and family members gathered together as a coffin containing Clavius's body was lowered six feet into the ground and buried under a mound of soil. Ten days later, a hefty memorial stone commissioned by the family was placed over the unfortunate man's grave. And that, it seemed, was that. It was 18 years later that a relative of Clavius's was walking through the marketplace in Lestere when a commotion erupted before him and soon a large crowd had started to gather. Pushing through to the front, 
the relative soon found the subject of its attention. A stranger that had just entered the village, who looked surprisingly similar to the long-dead Clavius. The relative soon realised with horror, the man didn't just look like him, it was him. Clavius's sister Angelina, who still lived in the village, was quickly summoned to speak with the man, now openly claiming to be her long-dead brother. Though incredulous at first, Angelina soon found herself standing before the man, who, though much older and a little frailer than he was before, looked undeniably like Clavius. When he gave her his nickname, only something she and her siblings had ever called him, her legs threatened to crumble beneath her. There was no denying it anymore. It was Clavius, back from the dead. And there could only be one reason that that was possible. Her brother, or what was left of him, was a zombie. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. The figure of the zombie is deeply ingrained in Haitian culture and folklore. To understand why, you have to understand the history of Haiti, or as UC Irvine professor Amy Wylance puts it, more specifically, you have to understand the concentration camp culture of the slave plantations. Haiti is located on the island of Ispiola in the Caribbean, which is also home to the Dominican Republic. The island is believed to have been inhabited for over 1,500 years, having once been home to the Arawak who migrated there from South America. It was descendants of these people, the Taino, who are thought to have been the first indigenous people that Christopher Columbus and his crew encountered on their maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean in 1492. Soon after arriving, Columbus attempted to establish a settlement on the northwest of the island, known as La Navidad. The following year, however, some of the Taino burned it down, having become convinced that Columbus and his men had in fact been sent from the underworld to consume them. When Columbus returned to find La Navidad destroyed, he responded by establishing another settlement in what would later become the Dominican Republic on the opposite side of the island, which he named La Isabella. When gold was discovered shortly after, the European settler population began steadily to increase. 
partly in retribution for what some of the Taino population had done to Lenavidat, but also as an inevitable consequence of the ever-expanding European population, the settlers slowly began to exert more authority. The indigenous population of what is now Ispaiola, before Columbus's arrival, is estimated to have been somewhere between several hundred thousand to a million people. Over the next ten years, as the colonialists enslaved, massacred, and fatally infected the Taino, this population had dropped to 35,000. As rampant colonial expansion into the Caribbean continued over the next few hundred years, Ispaiola became increasingly important as a gateway to the other islands. When buccaneers from France succeeded in settling on the west side of it, rather than become embroiled in an endless fight, the governments of France and Spain decided instead to divide the island between them. In 1697, the government of France assumed ownership of its western third and named the territory Saint-Domingue. What appealed most about Saint-Domingue to the French government and the colonial families that lived there was its abundance of sugarcane. As the crop became increasingly lucrative, Saint-Domingue in turn became France's most profitable territorial holding. But in order to make and keep it so, required thousands and thousands of slaves, abducted mostly from Africa. By 1720, as many as 8,000 a year were being brought to the island. Conditions in the slave colonies were so harsh and their treatment by slave owners so brutal that a third of all slaves died within two years of arriving. By the mid-1780s, it is estimated that as many as 450,000 slaves lived in Saint-Domingue, with as many again having died as a result of their bondage since the colonies were first established. But then, in 1789, something extraordinary occurred. Thousands of miles away, on the other side of the ocean, the spirit of revolution had been unleashed in the French homeland. Back in Saint-Domingue, a small section of the population, known to the colonial powers as the free people of colour, inspired by the French Revolution, began to wonder if they could achieve the same. This group, which occupied a unique place in Saint-Domingue society, was composed largely of children whose mothers had been raped by slave owners and had been granted some minor freedoms in return. Emboldened by the size of the island's slave population, which outnumbered European settlers by nine to one, the free people of colour succeeded in organising a mass slave revolt. As plantations were torched and colonialists killed off one by one, the French government were eventually forced to relinquish control of the country. On January 1st, 1804, taking the original Taino word for the island, Haiti, the newly freed people declared their independence. Despite gaining independence, the deep-rooted history of slavery, which so horrifically underpinned the founding of the nation, has continued to haunt the people of Haiti. It is from out of this history that the zombie, 
as an icon of Haitian folklore first emerges. Certainly, it isn't difficult to see the similarity between the image of a zombie and the basic horror of servitude. To be robbed of all personality and agency, and reduced to your most basic functions. Over time, as the anxieties of slavery became more entwined with the culture of voodoo that had been brought to the island from West Africa, a new idea of the zombie materialized, becoming something that could be conjured up with the power of voodoo and treated like a slave at the beck and call of its master. Voodoo, meaning spirit in the Fon language of Dahomey, a kingdom which once occupied parts of today's Togo, Benin and Nigeria in West Africa, was first brought to Haiti by slaves in the 17th century. Those who followed the religion centered their beliefs around the divine creator, Mawu, a female being who in one tradition bore seven children, each gods in their own right, governing the forces of nature and human society. Further spirits are considered to be embodied in various elements of the natural world, such as streams, trees and stones. With all creation being divine in this sense, the religion is particularly fascinating from an ethnobotany perspective with regard to medicines and herbal remedies, since they are also believed to contain the power of the divine. It is this understanding that gives rise to the ritualistic use of talismans, known as fetishes, that many who are otherwise unfamiliar with the religion might recognize, such as the use of dolls, statues, and even in some cases, human body parts. Voodoo priests, known as haungans, have traditionally played a vital part in Haitian society, occupying all manner of roles from community leaders to psychologists and spiritual healers. And then there are the Bokor. Although once considered simply priests, they have since come to be known, more specifically, as sorcerers capable of using voodoo to conduct black magic. Though many consider the zombie to be little more than a feature of Haitian folklore, there are many others who know them to be real, and it is the Bokor who create them. Having been deeply unsettled by her brother Clavius's sudden reappearance, Angelina Narcisse offered him money to go away and leave the family alone. As the other villagers grew equally unsettled by the reappearance of a man who had been dead and buried 18 years ago, the police were eventually forced to arrest him for his own safety. A short time later, Clavius was brought to the attention of Lamarck Dion, a one-time student of Dr. Klein's, who had now returned to his home country of Haiti to practice as a psychiatrist. Doyoun carried out a number of extensive interviews with both Clavius and his family and concluded incredibly that he was indeed who he said he was. What's more, Clavius wasn't the only one to suddenly reappear under such circumstances. As it happened, Doyoun had been systematically investigating reports of zombies since 1961 with a number of cases being of particular interest. In 1979, for example, one bereaved mother spotted someone that looked exactly like her 30-year-old daughter walking aimlessly near her village. The woman was later identified as the daughter through a matching scar on her forehead, 
and after the coffin she was supposedly buried in was found to contain nothing but rocks. The following year, another woman, Nataget Joseph, was found wandering around her village by a local police officer, the same officer who had pronounced her dead 14 years previously. All the subjects had been not only clinically determined to have died, but had also been buried, only to seemingly reanimate and reappear alive many years later. Although he was convinced that the phenomenon was very real indeed, Doyun didn't believe that these zombies had risen from the dead. Either way, he had so far been unable to explain it. The relatives of the unfortunate victims of whatever it was that was taking place remained adamant, however, that these individuals had been first murdered and then brought back to life without their souls. Like Lamarck Doyoun, Klein and his colleague Lehman were also convinced that the phenomenon was real, but that there had to be a rational, scientific explanation behind it. But just how, thought Davis, could these individuals have been declared dead, buried alive, then somehow kept alive long enough for them to later be dug up again? And what on earth would account for them having been kept in their supposed zombie state for so long? Well, said Klein, as he handed Davis a sealed envelope, that is precisely what we want you to find out. Later that night, Davis made his way to Grand Central Station and took a train back to Boston. Once on board, he opened the envelope that Klein had given him, finding inside it a smaller envelope filled with cash, a ticket to Haiti, and a Polaroid photograph of Clavius Narcisse. Over the next few days, he made the necessary arrangements for the trip and began formulating his own ideas about the apparent zombie phenomenon. It was Dr. Klein's theory that some kind of drug was at the centre of it, something that could give the appearance of death. Klein had in fact come across something similar 30 years previously, after being given a possible sample of it by a film crew from the UK's BBC, who had been making a documentary about voodoo at the time. Despite carrying out a number of promising tests with the substance, Klein was unable to ascertain precisely what it was made of. And so it was, in April 1982, armed with little more than a photo of Clavius Narcisse and contact details for three individuals, Max Beauvoir, a local authority on voodoo religion, Marcel Pierre, the Bocor who had given the sample to the BBC, and lastly, the psychiatrist, Lamarck Doyoun. Davis boarded a flight to Haiti, and his adventure was just about to begin. You've been listening to Unexplained Season 4, Episode 8, Death's Pale Flag, Part 1 of 2. You can hear the second and final part next week on Friday, 17th of May. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. 
All Elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.